Welcome to the Nightmare Box Presents The Art of Wargaming. I am Yaga Malark, and unfortunately, Onishiro was not able to join us today, but with me is actually my apprentice, Kaji. Hi, guys. How's it going? And uh, we're, we're here to talk about maneuvers against the enemy today. Um, but before we do so, I actually had a listener write in, uh, which I was very pleased about. And remember, you can uh, write, write us on Facebook. You can hit me up on Instagram. Uh, we have a, an email now. So if, if you've got questions, comments, concerns, if I glossed over some things like um, uh, Mr. Rama um, was saying, then I, I definitely want to address those things on the show. And, and he uh, was, was kind enough to write in, so I wanted to go over a few things, uh, some minor corrections that he pointed out to me. Um, when I talked about the Battle of Agincourt, um, I don't think I emphasized that in England there was a culture of yeomanry. There was a culture of longbowmanship. So it, the, the spikes had been handed out as, as part of a, a strategy of Henry's, but the, the idea of using these... Uh, highly efficient peasant longbowmen had been around for a decent long time. Uh, Henry did not invent that concept, uh, but I don't think I emphasized that during the last or during that show. So I want to make sure I touched on that. Um, when I talked about the Boer War and the Zulu War, I conflated the two, or I conflated the Boer War for the Zulu War, and I actually ended up switching the ideas. I was comparing the idea to the to the horde tactic of rushing in, and I wrongly attributed that to the Boer slash uh, Zulu side of what I was talking about. Uh, the British were the ones. The British were the ones who just threw in mass conscripts at the end and, and used those to win. Um, and then World War II, I oversimplified the the Soviet tactic during the Battle of the Battle of Stalingrad, or uh, um, yeah, in, in that Eastern Front, and I and I and I didn't go in enough. Uh, to the depth of of what the Soviets were doing, because there was a lot of other things tactically, strategically going on in the region, um, the, the the strikes that were occurring in the southeast and in the south part of uh, of Europe that were drawing forces away, that was making all this possible. Um, Again, there was an oversimplification that took place, and then uh, I, I promised Rama that I will be getting Romance of the Three Kingdoms tattooed on my forehead at some point. It may be after I'm 55, I need to be able to collect a pension first. But after uh, after that's possible, I'll get a nice face tattoo that says Romance of the Three Kingdoms, so I never forget that again. But what what Rama has pointed out is, is actually something that I, I want to touch on anyways. This show is around an hour and a half long. A lot of the topics that we cover are actually very, very, very deep topics. We are only skimming the surface uh, when it comes to, to depth uh, in this show. I, I touch briefly on each chapter of Sun Tzu's Art of War, but honestly, Sun Tzu's Art of War could be taught as a semester-long class, which each of these chapters involving several class periods. And each of these battles that we talk about, of course, the context and the, the pretext that, that lead up to these battles and everything that took place inside, everything that took place after, that you could literally spend hours and hours and hours talking about the details of any of these things that happened. We don't have that. We, we, we only have this hour and a half that I, that I get to talk to you um, and we get to talk about these, these things. So I encourage you, anytime we're talking about anything on this show, please don't just take my word for it. I would love it if, if you would go out and research these battles, research um, the material that we're going over, and, and know it for yourself. Again, I'm going to be looking at this from a certain perspective. I'm going to draw certain details as being important. But there's going to be things that I don't know. That's why I always have a co-host. That's why Oni's here most of the time. And when Oni's not able to be here, I have somebody else on. Because I, I, I'm not, I don't know everything. You know, there's going to be things that I miss. And it's always nice to have somebody else there to be like, well, wait, what about from this perspective? And it's like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. 
Um, so that's my little spiel. Again, Kaji, thank you for being here so that I don't uh, oversimplify <laughs> too much. <laughs> well, I don't know if I'm going to be that much help on that end. Pretty simple man, myself. Well, you know, honestly, that that's a good thing, and uh, I, I tend to overcomplicate as well. So but between the two, uh, we'll, we'll balance out, and that's okay. Um, so uh, before we get to know Kaji a little bit, because I've talked to him about him a, a few times on the show so far, uh, but before we talk to Kaji uh, about who he is, um, I wanted to talk about the color classifications that we've been using on this show for Belagarth weapons. Uh, because I realized, uh, there's another thing that Rama pointed out to me, that I never did. I've been sitting here referencing red weapons, blue weapons, green weapons, and without having read the Belagarth Book of War, um, or really, I, that's that's more Dagger here. We actually ripped those terms off from then. In, Dagger, in, in Belagarth, it's technically class 1, class 2, class 3, but I I hate that. I like the color better. Even though I'm colorblind, it helps me me sort it better. Um, So when we're talking about that, a blue weapon is a weapon that is under 48 inches, uh, a striking weapon, under 48 inches, uh, that is over 12, 11 ounces? ounces. 12 ounces. Um, A red weapon is a a weapon that is over 48 inches, a striking weapon over 48 inches, so a sword, an axe whatever. Um, and then a green weapon can be applied to anything. You can have a green that is, is by itself. Uh, so green is stabbing. So a lone green weapon, think dagger, think spear, you know, things that you're not necessarily going to be slashing with, uh, but that are for exclusively stabbing. Um, but, the, but a stab tip can be added to other weapons. So a, a sword, for instance, a lot of them are blue green because they're a small weapon, but they, uh, they have a stab tip that's been put on them. Uh, the significance of a red weapon is that it can break shields, and it doesn't. They don't, if you're using a red weapon, you don't necessarily have to care about armor as long as you're using two hands on it. So, for anybody who's been confused, thank you for sticking around for seven episodes without <laughs> understanding the nomenclature. Or if you were smart enough to go find the Book of War on your own, good for you. Um, but yeah, those are the color classifications. Um, you did uh, kind of gloss over uh, rocks and arrows because they do fall under the color classifications as well. Uh, rocks being white damage and then arrows and javelins being yellow damage. If your apprentice can't speak better about you on the Book of War, you have not trained them well enough. But yes, he's absolutely correct. I, I've often referred to rocks and arrows and javelins, but I usually refer to them as what they are. Um, but there, that's another good, there, there are a whole other, they got their own classifications of their own as well. So that's, that is a good point. Um, again, you're going to be hearing a lot of whooshing and rustling. We've got a furnace that's going right now. And then there's also a gas fireplace. So, uh, for the next few months, (laughs) our, our podcast is going to be a little, uh, noisy in the background, at least until I can find a space that, that isn't as noisy. You never realize how noisy a space is until you try to record it. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, it, it, it's absolutely crazy. Like, you'd be sitting there and you, you don't realize that, like, for me, I have to keep drinking water throughout the podcast because I'll listen back and my, when my mouth gets dry, you can hear that. Every lip smack, every tongue crack, like, it, it's, it's all there and it's nasty. You can hear me opening my water as well. You know, that ASMR, it's a real thing. It's a real thing. Oh, okay. Um,. So, Kaji, uh, I, I know a lot about you because I've been fighting with you a long time and we've been members of the same realm a long time. We're members of the same unit uh, for a while as well. But um, 
the listeners might not know that much about you. So how about you, you tell the listeners a few things about your, your Bellegarth career and a little bit about your Warhammer stuff? Fair enough. Uh, well, I started Bellegarth uh, officially in 2008. Um, I had kind of seen it at Hellgate High School because some weird guy had started some gladiator club there. What? Who? Yeah, I know. It was really strange. Um, but it always kind of piqued my interest. And then I uh, had a couple of friends who dragged me there when I was 18. And I just fell in love. Um, and I, so I've been doing it for about 11 years now. Um, so I'm getting to be one of the older guys. Uh, I didn't really start with under any affiliation. Uh, my current affiliation is Urukai, and I am the chieftain of the Frost Mountain Urukai, which is the Stygian, which is us here. Um, I also founded the Shinigami with Onishiro. A name and, that you guys will recognize. Right. Um... Yeah, uh, I really haven't done a whole lot with a lot of other units. Um, I mainly fought with the Urukai. I'm also a reaver of the Urukai, which is their pirate subsection. Um, my main weapons that I fight with Belagarth um, are red, uh, the two-handed sword. Um, I do that a lot. Uh, me and Oni used to roll pretty hard on it. Um, sword and shield. Combo. Just a brutal combo. Yes. Now, uh, there, there was many times where if me and Oni were getting picked on teams, if somebody said my name or Oni's name, the other name came up immediately because they just could not afford to have us on the same team. Well, two people who have practiced together, and especially uh, two Reds <laughs> that have practiced together and know each other's motions, that is absolutely lethal. Like, I, I loved being on y'all's teams, but when two uh, really motivated, uh, really strong red users roll up on you and know what they're doing, yeah, no, nobody wants to go against that. Uh Uh-uh, no. Yep. Um, So those are really my main styles, is the red and the sword and shield. Um, The sword and shield is the Urukai main tactic, because we are a shield wall as our primary standard, Um, though we have been breaking into more wolf pack mentality. Um, especially as our numbers have dwindled a little bit. Hard to run a shield wall without the numbers to support it because you got to have like a first rank, second rank, and be yeah. able to have all the flanks covered and everything like that. Got to fill the gaps. Mm-hmm. Always mm-hmm. fill the gaps. Um, I also did do some work with the early DGMA, um, Dreadgate Mercenary Alliance. If you remember, Thumbs talked about that in an earlier episode. Um, so that pretty much covers most of my Belagarth career, aside from being your apprentice and uh, this large smattering of volunteer work and other titles. Um, well, right on. Uh, real quick, I want to go back. Uh, for, for people who might be a little confused, you'd mentioned you were a reaver and that the, the pirates were kind of an affiliated subunit ish like they're their own separate thing but they're also an affiliated of the the urukai i had mentioned this before with the forsaken before they had broken off they were doing a very similar thing uh so the the urukai actually have a very successful policy of kind of incorporating not incorporating other units it's kind of like a confederacy mentality it's actually one of the reasons that they've been able to keep their numbers up is because there's usually a lot of cross between those various units and it, it really helps both units kind of keep that that solidarity too yep 
So you recently got into Warhammer as well, and I'm glad you did because you've gotten very good very quickly. Um, and I and I enjoy having someone that can really challenge me um, nearby because it's no fun. Like I've talked about before, I'm I'm kind of a masochist. I need a, I need good sport. I would get to the end of an actual battle full of either bullet holes or knife wounds or whatever, and be like, "That was awesome!" And then spend like three months in the hospital if I survived. It's not a great tactic, but it is where you, it's where those those fun moments come out. Um, and 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 you you kicked my butt in this last game that we had. And we, I want to talk about that. But first, I want you to talk a little bit about what armies do you play, um, and what and what's your kind of play style when you're doing the Warhammer 40k. That's fair. Um, I do a lot of Imperium. Um, I started with Astra Militarum, uh, what we usually refer to as Imperial Guard, um, rolling with the Militarum Tempestus Scions as my main base, and they're kind of the elite out of the Astra Militarum. Um, And I kind of went from the Astra Militarum, which has a large amount of men and vehicle support, and then went into the Space Marines, which they're very much more elite, focused on their infantry, less so on their vehicles. Even their dreadnoughts are just big infantry units. Now, which chapter do you do you favor for the Space Marines? Um, so I favor a couple of chapters. I really like the Salamanders because mm. artifact or weapons. Oh my god, it's amazing. And then Black Templars, because who doesn't want to rule fail charges? God, Black Templars are awesome. Uh, if it weren't for the lack of psychers, I would play them more often myself. Yep. Um, um, no, and the, the Salamanders are really cool, too, because if I recall, they're, like, the only real good guys in Imperium lore. Like, most of the time when you're, like, I'm, I'm a Dark Angel player when I play my Space Marines, uh, partially because I'm a Dark Angel in Belagarth and partially because I love Plasma. Um, but the Dark Angels aren't great. In the lore, like if something gets between them and the fallen, or if like a population finds out about the fallen, or you know if they're on a mission to save a population, but then the fallen pop up, they really don't care about normal people. Um, they 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 will sacrifice whole planets in order to pursue their secret agenda, um, which isn't great. Uh, they're still counted as good guys. There's going to be a bunch of people now mailing me heretic. Um, <laughs> I, I just have to deal with that as a Dark Angels player. But, as a niche guy anyways. Well, they, that, yeah, that too. It's all, all going to It's all going according to plan, Kaji. It's always going according to plan. Um, but uh, the Salamanders are actually good guys. They actually they actually try to help people out. They actually will, will sacrifice. I was reading uh, one of the more recent... No, it was uh, the, the War in Armageddon, and the Salamanders pop up, and um, there's the Black Templars there as well. And the Black Templars are very much the same as the Dark Angels, you know, to, uh, you know, sawed the civilians we have a mission to accomplish, whereas the Salamanders completely derailed the mission to protect them. Um, and they're always depicted as being good guys, you know. And that's, I don't know, in a, in a, in a very grim, dark universe, they're actually a, a force that seems like it would be decently feel good to play, I guess. I, I really do like a lot of their lore, um, especially like how they test their new recruits. Uh, they actually go and find a salamander out in the wild, which is like a dragon beast breathing fire. And they don't have their armor or weapons, and they have to bring back a head of a salamander. Which is totally metal. Oh, that's God, that's yes. totally metal. Especially well, for such nice guys. It's like if you walked up to the super nice guy at the party and found out that he had to go kill a Komodo dragon to get into the corporation that he's currently a part of. It's just kind of like, whoa, nice dude. I did not 
<laughs> Didn't see that one coming. And, and it's important not to forget that these nice guys, if they take off their helmet, they are jet black skinned with bright red eyes. Well, now, the reason for that, though, is because space marines have a, a, a adaptation to their skin. I can't remember exactly what the what the organ is called that they're implanted with, but it adjusts to the uh, radiation levels of where they are. So uh, space marines that spend a lot of time on a super solar radiated world will get super tan, very dark skinned. Ones that spend a lot of time on worlds that don't have a lot of sun will get super pale. Think night lords. Um, uh, but the salamanders broke. Like they're they're like that per- particular part of their gene code got corrupted or something like that, and so they're now they're like permanently jet black. Like, well, actually, it it has to do with their uh, home world. Their home world is such a toxic environment, essentially, mm-hmm. that that jet black is actually needed for straight survival. Sure, um, because it provides a resistance to the toxic gases and stuff that are just released in the atmosphere. Okay, okay, yeah, it's actually part of their hardiness. Oh, right on. See, I haven't, I haven't done that much research in the salamanders. They just pop up in books occasionally, and they're, they're really cool. So I need to read more about the salamanders. Um, but you recently picked up another army as well. Um, I Yes. Uh, well, i got to expand a little bit more on the Imperium. Oh, sure, so I'm sure, not quite done on that oh, one. Yeah. i got a lot of Imperium. Almost like I like the humans. Um, I'm voting for them. Let's go. They're actually cool in the Warhammer 40k universe. In most universes, humans are just so boring. But in Warhammer 40k, they actually managed to make humans just as hardcore as orcs and gene stealers and all that sort of thing. So, like, I, I don't know. Humans are easy to like in Warhammer 40k because they're just so much more metal than in other universes where they're just like, oh, I get one extra feet, but otherwise I'm useless. Right. D&D reference there. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Uh, but yeah, um, along with my space marines uh, going into salamanders, I also have my gray knights, and they're That's a right. different codex from the regular space marines, um, so they're not interchangeable. They don't really work together. Um, the gray knights are a high elite army, a lot of psychers, a lot of terminators, um, not a lot of special weapons or range shooting, lots of melee. Um, and then I also just picked up some Tyranids, um, just starting to learn those. Um, I've got a lot of Gene Stealers and Termagants. But um, they're very different than Imperium play, though. Extraordinarily so. They do a lot of advancing, which Imperium is, is very slow march, um, where Tyranids are flood. That's a good illusion. Uh, we're talking either like Halo reference, right? Like just this like incredible, or, or like an actual flood coming. In. Well, both of those references work. All quite right. well, that, I meant like a river because um, I'm the Minnesota boy. You know, uh, grew yeah, up around yeah. lots of water. Land of a thousand or ten thousand lakes or something. Ten thousand. Like yeah. I drove through Minnesota. I believe it. Uh, it was very wet. Didn't expect that so far from the Great Lakes. It's like fifteen thousand eight hundred. Uh, truth be told, that's crazy. It is so much water, so many mosquitoes. Yeah, I'm. I'm not a mosquito person. I mean, I'm. Of course, I'm not a mosquito person, but I don't like mosquitoes either, because uh, I think there's a difference. I'm pretty sure mosquitoes don't like mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but gene stealers like gene stealers. We do know that. Um, so you you haven't been playing that long, but you've you've really gotten fairly good fairly quickly uh you did decently well at one of the tournaments i went to with you in fact i think you did you win or you got second or something like that right 
took third. You took third, that's right. Yes, I took third in my first tournament ever. Um, not that there was a huge competition factor. This was a local Missoula tournament where, yeah, this wasn't like the Las Vegas Open or anything like that. Um, but no, yeah, you, you got in pretty good pretty quick. And I think a huge part of that has been the amount of practice. Like, you, you get in a, a large number of games out of the people in our, in our club, the Black Lotus Sector. You get in a, a lot of games. Yeah, I try to play a game about once a week. I try to too. I, the, with the, the with the wedding and the trip I just took to France, um, it, it was really hard <laughs> to stick to that. Um, strangely enough, I didn't go looking for a game in France. I probably should have, but I didn't actually see any games workshop stores either. I wasn't looking in the right places. But no, that's that, that's that's fantastic because I mean, with Melagarth, we say you got to practice at least once a week to be learning these things to have it actually stick in your head to get the muscle memory. But that's also true with things like 40k because I mean, with 40k, everything's supposed to go fairly quickly, but you have a lot of information to be uh, uh, in command of. So the less time you spend on Battle Scribe, <clears throat> the less time you spend in your book uh, looking for the information, and the, when you're just like, nope, I just know my scions hit on force. I just know that. I know that because I play against the Scions a lot, but you know that because you look, you know, you don't need to look anymore. But you're, you're, the Scions hit on threes. See, he plays the Scions. I don't. <laughs> Normal guardsmen hit on fours. Yep. Weapon skill of four, ballistic skill of three for yeah. the Scions. Yeah. See? See, this is why he played the Scions right here. I'm an Admech player. I do play guard, but I always have to look at my book when I play my guard because they're like supplemental to my Admech because I adore them. Um... But we recently had a game, the two of us, um, and uh, it was for this uh, a tournament for the the Black Lotus sector. We were having this little in-house tournament, um, and it was it was for the final, and it felt like a like a revenge mode for you because it was very, like in the very first round of the tournament we drew each other, um, and it was a decent game, but it went in my favor and I ended up winning. And then I went undefeated for the rest of the tournament until this last round. When Kaji, who in every other game that he played scored very high and won, came from behind, and we did a, a like a bracketed um, final, which is to say the two top players went against each other. So the Admech and the uh, and his guard uh, Marine combination got another go at each other, and it definitely went in your favor this time. Yeah, it definitely did in this one. Uh, got a little bit more of a drop on you. And I felt I felt like I had an advantage. The way that we we first went down on the board, I ended up getting a little bit more defensive cover on my side. And since both of us were playing heavily shooting armies, I felt like that was working to my advantage. And I set myself up kind of in a corner, completely glossing over in my mind that half of his army was going to be deep struck. Um, and so he, he pressed that amazingly. And I think, again, I'm, I'm actually glad to have him on this week. I'm not glad that Oni wasn't able to make it because I love you, Oni, and, and uh, I hope everything's going well. Um, but in the same token, I was going to be talking about this game anyways, so it's nice to have him here to <laughs> kind of back up what I'm saying about him. Hi, um, Oni, by the way. But yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I, we started... I was in this corner, he had his guys kind of spread out with very good coverage. His side was a bit more open, but that gave his tanks, because he was using tank commanders, um, that gave his tanks some extremely good coverage. Like, he may not have had the best cover, but like, his guns, uh, because of where I had set up, there was no way I could squeeze out without him being able to get a really good angle on me with one or two of his tanks, at least. Especially with my knight, I was using a nice knight castellan. You ever tried to hide a Knight Castellan on the board, like 
the, the work on it is uh, a little tough. I managed to find a good spot for him. I'm not completely hiding him, but I did get him him skinnied up a little bit there. Yeah, you ducked him all pretty pretty well. My first turn was not very uh, fireworks. Well, neither of us were, and that was the that was the downside because the whole point of me deploying that defensively, the whole way it was going to work, was denying myself field um, control to be able to hit back really hard at the bottom of turn two. And by the bottom of turn two, with all the shooting I was able to do, I didn't take anything off the board. I had moved everything into the open in order to get this shooting phase and was really, really hoping, because he, he had taken that Vigilus Defiant um, detachment, the uh, the Emperor's Fist. And so I, I saw his Hammer of Sundrance, the, the, the tank he had with the Hammer of Sundrance, and I was like, that needs to die. And my dice did not cooperate. <laughs> with my ambition. Um, and, and that didn't end up going that way. Uh, and so that neither of us did much that first round, but you had a huge, uh, advantage that second round because all my stuff was kind of in the open. And not only did you get a full shooting phase with all your things, nothing tracked, nothing removed, but you also got to drop all these scions and reavers, um, on me, which was beautiful and had me playing defensive the entire game because of the way that first round went. I was on the back foot the whole game. I feel like I played a decent game, but you definitely won. End score was like 32 to 18, so he didn't double me quite. <laughs> not, not quite. I almost <laughs> quite. got there. It was definitely my effort. Um, but yeah, no, you, you, put it, you put on a hard turtle shell, um, you backed yourself up into a corner, and then with my field control, I was able to take the point advantage, um, especially as we were playing the Crucible of Champions, and I had the three characters on the objective, I do believe, by, like, turn three for just that extra point generation, yep. which really kept me in that lead. Um, and the main thing was making sure that once I got close enough that I press that advantage hard enough to keep it in there. Um, because if I didn't do that, I was not going to be able to tie up enough of your stuff to keep you from just shooting me back off the board. And I, and I feel like I gave decent sport between my Onager Dune Crawlers and my shooty Castellan robots, and then, of course, the, the Night Castellan itself. I was able to clear a good amount of that, but by the end of it, I had a skeleton crew holed up in this little, this little fort, being like, just... Turn six, come! I mean, this was a tournament game, so I didn't want to just, you know, give in or or or, or, or uh, uh, surrender and surrender all my points, and then also max out your points at the same time because these points are going to be important here at the end. Um, but in the same token, I was glad I didn't get tabled, which I might have if the game had gone on another <laughs> another round. I might have gotten tabled, but I didn't. I've tabled most of the opponents on turn four in this tournament. So, uh, full turn six, that was pretty beasty. And the fact that I lost at 18 victory points, I mean, that's hardly a loss. Again, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't kick myself over that game. It was a good game. Uh, you played very well. There were several clutch situations that ended up going in your favor, and you, you saw those opportunities, and you seized them, and you pressed them. And again, like I told you there, and I'll tell you again here on Live Air, it made me very proud as a war master to see you at, like using such good tactical acumen. Um, yeah. Uh, well, thank you. When I, when I see my students doing well or my apprentices doing well, 
of course, as a narcissist, I'm like, I'm awesome, <laughs> and this <laughs> makes me feel awesome. But no, you, you guys, you're, you're, you're excellent. Um, so are you good, sir? Well, I appreciate you. Um, but, but all of this, the, the, again, the reason I wanted to talk about this battle that we had is it kind of plays into these ideas that are expressed in this chapter, maneuvers against the enemy, and also in the battle that I ended up choosing for today, Carhi. Anybody who's studied Rome or Parthia um, will recognize this one, so I'm going I'm to try to not oversimplify it, but also uh, I, I think that there's some, several key points that kind of back up what we're talking about in this chapter, um, and the first of which is the idea of risk versus reward. What Kaji did was very risky. He he moved his tanks out into the open, that turn two, and then he dropped all of his troops into fairly open areas. A lot of your a lot of your scions had cover. A lot of them were in were in craters or or, the, or something like that near ruins. Um, but this this sudden hit, if it if it hadn't gone well, there was a huge risk. You would you would uh, you may have been in danger of overextending yourself, except that it was exceptionally effective. So what's the difference? What is the difference between taking this risk um, and, and, and walking that fine line between reward and absolute peril? Well, seizing the opportunities are a must. When you see an opportunity, like you saw, I was backed into a corner. It was going to take me a turn or two to get any sort of field control, even with my knight. So what did you do? You made sure I stayed in my corner, and that was, that was you seeing that opportunity and taking it. But if I had been able to hold you off, if I had, if I had maybe done one or two things differently, or if the dice had gone, you should never blame your dice. But sometimes when you're evenly matched, luck absolutely plays um, a factor. Um, I was, but again, he dropped reavers on a on a building above me, and all these scions in front of me, and then this uh, land raider full of reavers as well was barreling down on me. So I I was. And then behind that, of course, you had these three tank commanders who were just taking their shots as they as they wished at that time. Um, so again, this is a, a massive forward deployment, but the but the risk paid off. Yep, for you in this particular case. Now, uh, my list is very specifically designed to do this because of the scion's ability to uh, deep strike, essentially. Uh, I can't remember what ability they're using. They're basically using parachutes. But uh, because they have that massive ability, I'm able to take the field with the standard militarum, um, all the regular infantry and the tanks, as well as the space marines, and it was a repulsor, not a land raider. Excuse Somebody me. Somebody yeah. will call you on that, because yeah, I don't sorry. think land raiders can carry Primaris. Again, I don't, my Dark Angels are collecting dust right now. I really need to read all the new stuff on the Dark Angels, because it's cool, but I've been very focused on my ad mech. But no, you're, no, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and and so, again, he, his list was designed to do this. Um, I, I kind of played right into his hands there. I was thinking I was doing the smart thing by staying out of sight of his tanks. But um, what he what he had done in this particular situation is put me into a lose lose situation. We'll talk about this later when we're talking about mastery. But the idea of putting your opponent in a lose lose situation where it doesn't matter what they decide to do, it's going to hurt them. That's the ideal. That's the ideal tactical situation, at least from a commander's point of view. Um, so there's this peril of rushing, though. Sometimes, and, and, and you saw this a little bit when we, when we did our, your first Tyranid game. Mm-hmm. Um, your, he had planned on going first, and by all rights, he probably should have gone first. I happened to seize on him. Um, but he put his gene stealers out in the open. 
And so when the first round commenced and I was able to go first, I put my guns where they needed to be, and I blew the, the, that off the table. If he had gone first, they were in a great position. That was another one of those risky situations where it were kind of dependent on how things shook down. But um, that didn't end up paying off just because of the, the way the turn order ended up going, you know? And we can see this principle in Belagarth too, or in any sort of uh, foam fighting or, or fighting like SCA or HEMA or anything like that. If, you, if you've got large group combat... Uh, flanking is another one of these kind of risk-reward ideas. If you're sending some of your good, especially your good fighters, if they're going out flanking, if they do well, if the mission is successful and they manage to get behind enemy lines and wreck the enemy line, then it was successful, and that's an awesome maneuver. But if they go out and they happen to get cheesed or, or get legged or, or something like that and not contribute to that main effort, then it wasn't successful. That, that same maneuver, because of the way the circumstances uh, transpired around it, can be successful, but not always successful. And it's really about controlling where the, uh, whether or not the resources are going to be well-placed. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Because, again, if you've, got, if you've got one really, really good fighter, and they're constantly going flanking, then they have a lot more on their shoulders at that point. Because if their main team gets wiped, you can be the best fighter in the world. If 10 people know what they're doing, you're going to lose to 10 people. Uh, you just can't block 10 swords at the same time. Um, but, again, it's a risk-reward thing. And that comes down to the individuals or, or whatever team uh, that we're talking about. And you had mentioned resources before. And, and in using these resources, you're also thinking about capturing resources. This is another thing about the risk-reward that Sun Tzu mentions in this chapter, is the idea of capturing resources from your enemy. And as we've said before on this show, most Warhammer games and most Belagarth games are not played for keeps. Um, we get to the end of a match, I don't get to keep your sword or keep your army or whatever the case may be. Thank God, because it would be a lot more expensive. <laughs> and then one person would just have a mountain of swords they have no idea what to do with. Turkey feathers. <coughs> they could build a throne out of it. I've seen that done. It would be a lot more comfortable if it was made out of foam swords than, than steel swords, I reckon. Or cushion, you know? Right. Um, yeah. Who wants that iron throne? But apart from your foam throne, uh, what other resources are we talking about here? Again, we're talking about knowledge. Um, if you're paying attention to your opponent, especially when you're defeated, um, knowledge should be the greatest thing you're, you're gaining. I've been taught this lesson before, but Kaji was so kind to remind me again our last lesson, that when you defend everywhere, you are weak everywhere. And that is what I attempted to do, and I didn't take a solid enough forward position because, again, he's he's blasted me apart with those tanks before. This isn't the first time. I'm I'm not uh, a greenhorn when it comes to being blown apart by Imperial Guard. Um, and I know that the, the best thing you can do is press them, make them make hard choices, put them in situations where they have to make lose-lose choices. I didn't do that. I depended too much on my ability to strike back at the bottom of turn one, and when that did not happen, I didn't have an answer for the rest of what you were doing. But... Resources-wise, because thankfully you didn't uh, steal my my uh, my stuff afterwards, my uh, <laughs> my morals or anything. I was able to learn a little bit from you, having not had to be beheaded or anything in my defeat. Um, and this was this was able to be done for uh, another reason as well. But we're going to get to that in a second. Uh, also, learning the tactics, seeing what your opponent does, seeing how they use their pieces. Um, 
this will help you the next time. If you're facing Tyranids for the first time, you're not necessarily going to know all of their tricks or all the things they can do. The second time you face Tyranids, you should do a lot better because you should have been paying attention to what they are capable of the first time around. Now, again, there's a lot of different ways to play Tyranids, but a lot of the, the key concepts remain the same across the army. You know what I'm saying? Got to work the basics. But this is largely done also because of respect. Um, Kaji and I respect one another and we're willing to talk things out, like, especially after a game when we're sitting there kind of doing a debrief with one another. Um, this is possible because we respect one another. We don't call each other mean names or anything. I might say, you know, F you to my dice if they're not behaving or something like that, but I know it's not Kaji's fault. He's, he's just my opponent. He's the one giving me good sport. Um, and so part of the reason that we can learn from one another the way that we do is because we respect one another. And in gaining that respect, uh, we can also... This, this is also very true in Belagarth as well. Uh, and we've talked about this before, repping your unit's brand. Every unit is looking to expand. Every knight lineage or warmaster lineage or, or any titled lineage is looking to expand if they do not wish to die. New blood is always important because we ourselves are not immortals. Our bodies uh, break down over time and we need new people to replace us when we're no longer able to do the work. So, if somebody's first exposure to the Black Lotus Sector, or first exposure to the Dark Angels in Belagarth, or the first exposure to the Urukai, uh, in Kaji's case, is somebody who is not respectful, uh, somebody who is uh, not repping their team well, if that's the first person they've ever encountered, it doesn't matter how understanding of a person you are, you're going to have an impression, a bias, in your head, of what that unit is based on that one person's bad behavior. I, I know when I first came into the sport, there was a reputation for knights not being cool people. Like anybody who had the title of a knight was automatically just a jerk, was kind of the idea. And that was because at the time, there were some people who had received the title who may or may not have deserved it, made a bad name for it, and I came into that bias. And so for the longest time, I didn't want to pursue anything like that, not because I didn't... I didn't think it wouldn't be fun or wouldn't help me grow as a fighter, but because of the stigma, you know? Nobody wants to be associated with that. Right, right. And so if you've got somebody in your unit, or if you are the person in your unit who is giving your unit a bad name, that's not just that's not just bad politics, that's bad recruiting too. Nobody wants to join a unit or join a lineage or join a club that has a bad reputation, or, or for any reason. No. Uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to be a part of the Hell's Angels. Unless, of course, you were into that. Yeah, I guess <laughs> if that's your, your cup of tea, that's your cup of tea. Right. But, I mean, they have that stigma about them, even though, from what I hear, most bikers are actually extraordinary people. You know, a slight slight derailment. Uh, the Hell's Angels actually came to town one time, uh, and I was working at an Army-Navy store. And they came into the store, and... We had been told all sorts of things about the Hells Angels growing up, and of course, um, most of them, I don't know how true they are, but I will tell you that these three fellas that came into the store were the most polite, well-behaved, well-spoken people that I had seen probably in a week or a week after that. Like, they were, they were outstanding people, and I know that they were probably on notice a little bit, you know, the cops were paying attention to them, and so they were trying to interact well, but it was one of those things where, like in most cases, if you're not starting anything they're not going to start anything. You know, if you're not walking up to bikers and running your mouth, chances are they don't care. 
that you're there. They, they're not looking to just go around roughing people up. That's trouble that they don't want to deal with. So don't make yourself trouble um, is, is kind of the whole idea there. Because, again, I, I thought that they were, were swell individuals when they rolled into town. Um, but, again, reputation, perhaps thanks to Hunter S. Thompson for being rather brutal. Um, and that's all rather... I mean, it, it, that, that also might reinforce the image. That might be something they're going for. I know, I know some units or some groups might be striving towards a more hardcore or a more exclusive image, but just be aware that when you go for that, there's always the other edge of the sword. There's always the fact that uh, having a good reputation is in of itself a good reward in a lot of, in a lot of cases. But uh, that's not to underestimate or understate the fact that, of course, everything we're talking about, all these war games, there is competition. The idea is to win. Do so in a respectful and sportsmanlike way, but to win. And so to do that, you have to press your advantage, which is what we were talking about with what, what Kaji was doing with his army, was, was pressing all of his advantages. Um, now, this can also be done in a more metaphoric way. When, when Sun Tzu is talking about this in the chapter, he, he talks about you need to understand the nobles and the terrain of wherever you're going to be fighting. And both of these can be taken in a semi-literal or totally literal, in the case of the terrain, uh, way. Uh, when you're talking about nobles, we're talking about the major players in that particular area. So if you're going to a Warhammer 40k tournament, for instance, it pays to be paying attention to who else is going. Do you have any big names on that list who you're going to need to worry about? Are there large clubs that have really good membership that are going to be coming? Uh, these are things you want to know. It's the same thing with a, a Belagarth event. If you're going to a new event, um, who are your nobles, you know, who are your, your movers and shakers in the community, what units are they associated with, um, what is the current political climate in that area, like how are all these units interacting, and these people interacting, and then finally, of course, the meta, what are people using? And even if you're completely out of the sport, even if you haven't been fighting for the last five years, there exists a marvelous resource that I've talked about before, and that is YouTube. Um, people are putting their secrets up on there all the time. People love posting videos of themselves, so you can get a great feel for what the current style of fighting is and and what the gear is that a lot of people are using just by watching YouTube videos of tournaments and of uh, battles or even just sparring really and it's a constant update oh yeah and I mean yeah this information is constant if you were in five years ago and you're like you know what I think I know the Urukai you don't know the Urukai right yeah <laughs> the, the Urukai five years ago does not look anything the same right and we're talking about the Western Urukai, by the way. I know we have some listeners on the Eastern, uh, so I, 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 I don't want to keep talking about the Eastern Urukai and have you know uh, people over there being like, who are they talking about? I don't know any of these people. This is the Western Urukai, um, for, for, for clarification. Um, but yeah, Where's so, the wa, not the uh. <laughs> the wa. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a constantly evolving thing. And again, you can go on the boards as well, see what people are talking about, what current rules are being discussed. Uh, you're going to again see who the large players are here because of the people with some of the loudest voices on the boards. Um, one of the unspoken rules of Belagarth, unfortunately, is that your opinion seems to matter more, A, the longer you've been around, and B, the better fighter you are. Like, I, that's one of the truths that has been definitely... Like, I didn't think that that was the case for the longest time. And I it was one of those privileged things because after about six years, like I've talked about, I got my head out and decided I wanted to learn how to fight. And I got fairly decent. Um, 
And so people, people started listening to me. I thought it was just because I had gotten older. Uh, people started listening to me, started listening to my opinions, started listening to some of my ideas. Um, and then I was talking to another one of my friends, and she has amazing ideas. Um, she, she has an incredible vision for what could happen to the realm, what could happen to the sport, uh, really good motivation for getting it done, but she's not a huge fighter. Like she's, she's a, she's showed up to events. She likes to be around. She likes to talk to people, but she's just not the biggest fighter in the world. And I noticed that nobody was really listening to her. So when you're talking nobles in an area, you're talking about people who have basically earned their respect. It doesn't matter necessarily if you're a man or a woman. Uh, I mean, I, I know in some areas there's, there are, there is misogyny or, or machauvinism. Um, but by and large, the culture is just a jock culture. If you can perform well, you know, uh, people assume you know what you're talking about in other regards. You might not. I've, I've seen people who are great fighters who should not be spoken to on any other matter besides fighting. They're still authorities <laughs> because yes. they're good fighters. It's not, it's not a flawless system by any means of, uh, of extracting nobles, but that's kind of how it is. When you, so when you're looking at Belagarth, make sure you know that it is a, a military autoc- or aristocracy, basically. Um, would be a good way of classifying it. And I haven't been around enough in, uh, in Warhammer 40k. Like I've been playing a decent while, but I wasn't able to go to this last Boise cup. Um, even though I intended to. And so my, uh, my knowledge of the national scene or of the international scene is somewhat limited, but I would imagine it's kind of the same idea. The better you do, the better rep, the better cred you have. If somebody's won 10 tournaments, you're probably more likely to listen to them as far as what their list and strategies are than somebody who's never been to a tournament. Right, right. Um, and in the same way, uh, these nobles, there's ways to curry favor. Again, this respect thing that we're talking about, if you come into somebody's area, or even your own area, and you treat people well, and you treat people honestly, and you deal with them justly, um, these nobles can govern a lot. People, people, can make, people make or break what you want to do in this community, in any community. And if you want to accomplish something, you're going to need the help of other people. And if you alienate them, if you don't curry favor, and I don't, I don't mean boot licking, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting here telling you to be somebody you're not or to, or to falsify your intentions or anything along those lines. What I'm saying is be nice (laughs) (laughs) because social currency is a real thing. And and there's other forms of social currency too. Um, sometimes when I go to events, I'm not even a smoker anymore. I vape as you guys hear often on the show, you'll hear me Darth Vadering over here in the corner. Um, but I'll still bring cigarettes to events because there is no better form of currency than some cigarettes. Cause there's a lot of smokers in bell. Not everybody smokes, but there's a lot of smokers and about halfway through an event, a lot of those smokers are getting low on cigarettes. So I can walk into a camp and be like, Hey, I got three cigarettes for whoever gives me some water. You will get pelted by water when you, when you walk into that place. <laughs> yep. Or if you're looking for a meal and you're, you can smell something coming from the camp across the way, be like, Hey, I don't know if you have guys have a spare plate but I got a pack of cigarettes to trade for it. Oh yeah. If they got spare food for you, you will likely have a place at their table. And this is again, if they know you not to be a jerk, if they know you to be a, a person of good standing or at least of neutral standing, I'm not asking you to be a saint. I'm not asking you to abide by the cardinal virtues every single day or, or anything. Right. Along Say those lines. please and thank you. Not that much. Don't yell at people for winning or, or, you know, if somebody has been making a habit of hitting you in the face, it can be hard to keep your you're cool, but like if somebody just accidentally face shots you, it's not the time to like, I don't know, throw a fit. Like people, people can get a real bad image of you, especially if that's their first time meeting, you know? And I know everybody just wants to go on their weekend excursion and I know everybody just wants to be on vacation, but if you're also nice on vacation, 
that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And, and again, you're trying to grow, trying to, you're trying, always trying to rep your brand, whatever your brand might be, whether that's your unit or your house or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so understanding these nobles uh, and, and, and engaging in this practice of social currency, well, it's just, that's as old as humanity. You know, that's just, we're a sharing creature. Uh, the ancient Celts used to demonstrate their wealth by how generous they were. Um, it's, not a, it's not an uncommon thing. Um, so yeah, understanding the nobles is a huge part of pressing this advantage. Again, and this is, this is of course, kind of off-field stuff, but if you understand that climate, if you understand what's going on politically and meta-wise, and you're in good with people, there's a lot of options that are then open to you on the field that then wouldn't be otherwise. Um, do you have anything to add on that one, Kaji? Uh, I'm sure you had some good experience with that, actually, in Europe. Uh, when you went over there, because you were having to have some real-life practice with that. Um, and I do believe that I even heard you tell me a couple of things about how your your multilingual ability uh, allowed you access to more over there it, than it if you didn't have it. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I like to study languages. I'm kind of a jack-of-all-trades. I study uh, military science a little bit, uh, as you can tell from you know episode, episode 7 <laughs> of this particular podcast. I've studied religion, um, and I've, I've studied language, because I find language and mathematics are very similar, and language is just fascinating. And the other thing is reading things in their original language is so much better than trying to read the translation. I'd like to learn Chinese, so I can eventually le- read The Art of War in the original Chinese and, and not have to rely on somebody else's translation because reading the Quran in Arabic was an amazing experience. And it was a, a very different book than reading it in English. And the same, what got me into French, which was very useful when I was over in Europe, was a, a poet uh, who wrote the Fleur de Mal uh, series. And I found when I was, when I was reading them, the English translations, they would often have some uh, famous uh, French, uh, either author or, or, or just a voice actor or, or somebody who does recordings, I guess, I don't know what to, to call them, um, that would be reading the, the poem. And when I would listen to it in the French, there was just so much more emotion. There was just so much more imagery that was conveyed, even from words I didn't understand. I didn't speak French at the time. I didn't read French or understand French. And so I'm sitting here listening to something I don't understand. And just because it's 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 in that original, they just there were just more meaning. So I had to learn French. I had to learn French to understand this poetry in the original language it was written in, and that came in handy while I was in France. And for the, it's just like the je ne sais quoi, that certain something, right? Get a little French in there. <clears throat> it doesn't hurt a little bit of everything. Like even when I was there, I, we ended up in a tea shop, and um, uh, my French is decent, but not good enough to talk about tea. Uh, the fellow that owned the tea shop, though, he was from El Salvador, and so he spoke Spanish as his primary language, and so when we first asked if he had speak, spoke English, he said no, but then he, he asked if we spoke Spanish, and I got very excited because my Spanish is actually way better <laughs> than my French is, so I was stoked to, to be able to have a little bit of the, the mental strain of, because I've never taken a formal French class, I've never practiced speaking French with another person, so to go into it conversationally was... It's always an adjustment, especially when you're around people who are proficient and aren't struggling with it at all. Um, it, there's a there's a huge learning curve, um, 
when you're learning a new language and you're around other people. But even even this, like speaking people's languages, it doesn't have to be as literal as studying languages for fun. It can be just knowing pop culture and knowing the, the references that people are going to be making. Um, again, I'm not saying that you have to you know toe the line and like everything that everybody else is liking, but if you want to get Arrested Development references, you need to watch Arrested Development. Now, I can't bring myself to watch Arrested Development, so I never get those references. But I acknowledge that I'm I'm losing out on that particular thing because so many people have seen it at this point. So it's a lovely right. show. I love South Park, though, and most people have seen South Park. So if you can get in there with a good South Park reference, you know, there's a that's a good in on of itself. Music, a similar thing. Um, no, so so the nobles of any given area, they're they're important, um, and they should be taken into consideration, even by uh, the most anarchic of people who don't like to ascribe to social order. Um, yeah. So terrain was the other thing we had talked about, impressing the advantage. And this one is actually quite literal. Uh, and this one can be discovered by doing a little bit of research. Uh, if you're going to Equinox or uh, Beltane for the first time, and you've never been to Monty Bell, um, you can absolutely look up video of what that site is like. You can look up reviews for what that site is like during that time of year. You can look up what the weather's going to be like and what that might be like in Tennessee. Um, there's a lot of research you can do before you go to Monty Bell for Equinox or Beltane, which are both events that I highly recommend, um, to know how, how different it might be from the area that you come from. Same thing with Battle for the Ring, and, and, and they're very different. And the reason I, I use these is because Equinox... A Beltane, this Monty Bell is in this is like smack dab in the middle of Tennessee in the basin. Very wet, very lush, very green. Um, if it's not raining, it's actually a, a wonderful place to be, just because it is so verdant. I mean, it just just the sheer amount of forest that Tennessee can summon is very impressive. But if it's raining, it's Tennessee rain, which means that the sky is taking uh, a, uh, just a large bucket and is dumping it over your head specifically, and then over the head of everybody around you. It's, it's an insane amount of water that they can summon in Tennessee. I just, I, I, coming from a desert climate, I thought I knew hard rain. And then my first rain in Tennessee, where I had left the Walmart and when we were leaving the Walmart, it had not yet started to rain. By the time we had gotten to the car, literally everything we owned was soaked like we had jumped into a river. Like that short amount of time, just a little walk across the parking lot, it went from no rain to the air is water. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well be swimming, huh? Might as well be. Yeah, it's crazy. So that, that's something to take into consideration. But if you come from a humid climate, and what I'm talking about is like, well, whatever, we, we just deal with this, going to something like Battle for the Ring, which is in the middle of the South uh, Californian desert, very different experience. Uh, you're going to need to drink a lot more water. Uh, because the desert will just suck it out of you. Um, night is a very different consideration as well, because it gets a lot colder in the yeah. desert than it. Like Tennessee was great because if it was nice during the evening, it stayed about the same temperature that it was during the late day. So you could walk around and not have to worry about bundling up until fairly early in the morning, and you'd be just fine. Especially if there are fires around, whatever, you're doing just fine. Where the sun goes down at Chaos Wars or Battle for the Ring, you better have brought a thick cloak. Yep, because the know? temperature just drops. Yeah. Um, so these these terrain things, and then, and then like how much foliage is going to be there. Um, if I had done more research before the first Ragnarok I went to, I would have known that woods battles were going to be a thing. And I would have brought different pants. 
uh, than the ones that I brought because I brought these almost short looking things and I needed something to cover my shins because I got cut up in those Pennsylvania woods. Um, still a great event, but I did not do my research on the train beforehand and that was on me. That paid um, the price. I paid the price. So researching for Bellegarth can be just as easy as figuring out where it's going to take place and, and getting a little bit of know-how on the site and on the surrounding area. Uh, just those simple things. Uh, for an actual tournament, it can be a little bit harder. If we're talking Warhammer 40K, the terrain thing still absolutely matters. Is this a, a tournament that often has a lot of terrain? Are they ones that typically include terrain, line of sight blocking in the center? Do they have sparse terrain? These are very good things to know before you try to take an army to a tournament because different armies do better in different situations. Yep. Um, and always know the rules for all the terrain pieces. Yes. Always double check it. Go through them. Read up on your stuff. Uh, get in touch with your event organizer and ask them. Just be like, what what uh, terrain are we going to be seeing there? What is the rules going to be in place? Um, one of the rude awakenings I had was I went to a local tournament here, and I just assumed that they would be using all current FAQ and um, beta rules. Because when Games Workshop puts those out, they say, we intend for these to be used, we're going to gauge how well they affect the game, and then we're going to decide whether or not we're going to keep them, change them, or uh, get rid of them. And so people are supposed to be using them. I just assume that. I show up at this tournament, and nobody's playing by beta rules. And... Uh, they're like the the one at the time that stands out the most was the first round or the first first battle round deep strike. This guy does it. Deep strike me on the first round, and I almost lost my mind <laughs> at this guy because I was like, "How are you doing that?" And he was like, "What? It's not, there's no rule against it." And we and we argued about it, and then eventually the TO came over um, and told me that I was crazy and that, you know, the, the, why would they be using beta in the first place? Because that was just the attitude around here. I had never known. I, this was like my first tournament I'd ever gone to here locally. So I didn't know that, that it, they were adverse to using the beta, adverse to using ITC. Um, and it was a, a bit of a rude awakening. But if I had done uh, without, I assumed, that was my bad. If I had not assumed, if I had gotten in touch with them beforehand and said, hey, what are we doing here? Give me specifics. I could have avoided... My heartache, because it was me that ended up looking like in the dummy. I may have felt justified and righteous in my indignation, but I wasn't. I went to the tournament. The tournament's rules were the tournament's rules. It was on me to know them before I went in. And much is the same with, with again, the, the terrain of an actual event. It's on you to kind of understand that before you go. So talk to a Unimate who's been there. Talk to a friend, a, a realm mate, or if you don't have either of those, uh, do a little bit of research. It'll save you uh, some heartache. Um... So again, pressing your advantage is, is more than just knowing your units and knowing how to use them well. Obviously, that's a huge part. If Kaji had not known how to use his guard and how to use his marines in this effective manner, his stratagem might not have worked as well as it did. But he did. He did know those things, and he also understood me. He'd played against me several times. He knew the way he was set up, that I was set up, was presenting this opportunity because he understood the quote-unquote noble he was going against. And then he understood the terrain. He understood how to use the terrain, even though he had a quote-unquote disadvantage uh, start. He had less cover on his side. He still managed to turn that to his advantage because he understood how to, how, how to use that terrain. Yeah. Using using baits is very important. 
Uh, Got to use those feints, and if your feint isn't something that's actually going to land, it's not a good feint. Absolutely. Nope, and, and yeah, we I think we talked about that last episode, but uh, it's another huge thing to touch on here. Like Kaji was saying to me earlier, Sun Tzu repeats himself. If you're reading along with us at home, you'll notice that sometimes it'll be like, didn't he just talk about this in the last chapter? And the idea is that he's building on the ideas as he goes. So, so yeah, he's going to take what he said in the last chapter, say it again, and then say something a little bit extra about it. And then take that idea, talk about it in the next chapter, and everything just kind of grows and the concepts become more complex as you go. I don't want to go into all that detail again as we're going through it because I want to be presenting new material. But that being said, what you said is absolutely true. No yep. matter what episode we're talking about. Yeah. Sometimes uh, you got to repeat yourself when you're painting the picture. Yeah. Uh, to drive that point home, um, and that all when you when you all that repetition, all that practice, that leads to mastery, which is the the last thing I want to talk about before we get to the battle uh, that we're going to be talking about today is this idea of mastery. And there's five different types of mastery that Sun Tzu talks about in this chapter. He talks about mastery of the devious, mastery of morale, mastery of emotion, mastery of the upper hand, and mastery of circumstance. And we're going to delve into a little bit of these and what they mean for wargaming, but my, my understanding is that, that mastery, what he's talking about here is the extra martial mastery. Because obviously, when it comes down to fighting, there's absolutely another type of mastery that needs to be put in here, and that's just mastery of your, your form, mastery of your, your weapon. Um, these, are, these are more abstract Masteries. These are the maneuvers against the enemy that aren't that aren't technically the tactical idea, but the things that are in place in the background that enable the maneuvers to go more smoothly. Right. Got to get the nuances. So this mastery of the battlefield begins with the mastery of the devious, and for this, one must understand how to transform the direct or the the indirect into the direct and how to transform potential energy into kinetic energy. And the best way to do this is to have options. Again, using this game that Kaji and I had as a, as a reference, I didn't present myself with a lot of options. He knew what I was going to do. I gave the game away when I set up the way that I did. There wasn't a whole lot else I could do because I had pigeonholed myself into this idea. I didn't, I didn't have options coming out of that. Whereas he did. He had the whole field, the whole battlefield, to pick and choose where he wanted to put his units and, and make his threat th zones. And so making sure that those options are in your favor is mastery of the devious. Um, creating lose-lose situations. Where what your opponent chooses to do, because in that situation, I did. Like I, I keep kind of whipping myself for, for backing into a corner like I did, but when I looked at it, you were likely to go first. Uh, in fact, I had a you know, a 16.6% .6 chance of going first at that point. You, you were probably almost definitely going first, and you had a lot of really good tanks, and you had a lot of missile launchers, and so in my mind, I was like, well, I need to be defensive here. The lose to that portion was hobbling myself in my expansion, uh, but if I had set up in the open, there's every chance you would have blown something vital off the board first turn. Yep. So that was a lose-lose situation that was created for me. Before we even got on there, because I, I because I knew what he was doing, and instead of necessarily outthinking him, I, I thought myself into a corner, which is the danger when you're overthinking things. <laughs> K I S S. I've said it before. Say it again. Keep it simple, stupid. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's, it's a good premise. It's a good premise for anybody in wargaming. So this mastery of the devious, when you're looking at, at Warhammer, like we've been talking about, is making sure that you keep your options open so you never, your opponent is never really sure where you're going to hit them. Because they can't be. Uh, because there's so many options that you've been that you presented. Because normally I forward deploy my Castland robots to be like, hey, these mm-hmm. guys are going to be marching at you. I didn't this time. So you didn't have to worry about that option. You just had, oh, I can shoot whatever I want. It's over there. Um, so there's ways of, of opening these shots up so you, your opponent's never quite sure what you're going to do, and that keeps them on the back foot. And, and, and if they can't anticipate, that means that they can't get in the way of it is another, another good thing to know there. It's the same thing in Balagarth, though. If you, especially because we come back from the dead. So if you are a person who just sits on the left flank, not necessarily a flanker, but you sit on the left side of the field, um, people are going to get used to that. They're going to become aware of that. And if you're a good fighter, they're going to start maneuvering around you because of that. They're either going to put people against you that they think can take you, or they're going to avoid you. One of the, one of the two cases, but because of that predictability, you have now made yourself into a target that can be maneuvered around one way or another. So unpredictability is the mastery of the devious, making sure that people don't ever know exactly what you're going to do. If you're always flanking, you have taken away the whole point of flanking, which is that it's supposed to be kind of a surprise maneuver, supposed to catch people off guard. But if a person always flanks, and I know, okay, so-and-so is going to flank every time, every time, uh, I'm going to prepare for that every time. Yeah, you got to keep your options open. Right. Don't Uh, lock yourself in. And that even comes with weapons, too. If you are if you are locked in and you've been doing sword and board for the last decade, there are so many other things to do in this community. There's so many other ways to play. Um, people are going to get used to you. If, you. if you always use sword and board in the same way, people are going to get used to that. But if you start picking up some red, if you start picking up uh, some archery even, or, or some of the minor styles that aren't necessarily as high-performing, but definitely are skill-based, you can take things from that to your sword and board practice. Um, so this Mastery of the Devious comes from all over the place. I'll give you another one. Uh, shout out to my Durdemarian peeps. But I was very amused because when I first moved for, to Durdemarian, uh, which is in, in Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, I was there for a year. For the first three months, nobody knew I was left-handed. Because uh, the only two weapons I brought with me, I'd given away everything else when I moved eastward. I just couldn't take it with me across country from Montana. Um... But I, so I had left all my shields, all my spears, all my reds and everything on this side of the country, and I took two blues with me. So I was doing exclusively Florentine when I first started in Dur de Marion. Um, and nobody caught on to the fact that I was left-handed because I was using two swords, and so I was constantly killing them with this left hip chop. And, and Rigtaw, I remember Rigtaw, I think he's Sir Rigtaw now, um being really frustrated with me, like, how do you keep killing me? And then one day, uh, the... Uh, Yolm's Viking uh, guys brought a shield for me because I was I was fighting with them for a little bit and I, I squared up against him and I was using, of course, my left hand with my sword and my, my right hand had the shield in it and he's like, that's it. That's why you keep killing me. You're a lefty. <laughs> sneaky. So I didn't necessarily intend to be devious there but it definitely played to my favor. Nobody necessarily expected me to hit where I was hitting them from because nobody actually knew that I was left-handed. Which assume you're right-handed. Right. And those assumptions can put you on that back burner, much like they did in that Warhammer game where you pigeonholed yourself. Right. 
Well, you've got something similar, too. I think you are left-handed, but you fight right-handed most of the time. So, like, when somebody takes your right hand, they're like, oh, you know, I've, I've done something good. Now he's going to be fighting hobbled. And it's like that scene from Princess Bride when they're like, well, I'm not actually. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, uh, I do that because I my my right arm does not do well with the shield, but my left arm, I can just defend myself all day. Gotcha. And then again, if my aggressive arm gets taken, I'm not actually hobbled. Right. Well, I, I've recommended before, and like I've, I know I've recommended to all of my apprentices, and I recommend it to all of my students, taking a year, a full calendar year, to just do offhand single blue. Well, uh, put your game through the stratosphere because it means by the end of that year that you do not have a weakness at that, from that angle. Uh, somebody can't just take your good arm and you're like, oh, well, crap, can't fight no more. You know, because <laughs> because that sucks. You know, suddenly you're suddenly you're completely hobbled. But if you do the offhand single blue thing, I guarantee you that it's going to improve your game. So after this mastery of the devious, which really just means not doing what your opponent thinks that you're going to do, or, or or not giving your opponent any idea of what you're going to be doing, comes the mastery of morale, and you get this by arriving to the battlefield, well fed, well rested, and well motivated. This one is pretty straightforward, and I know this can be hard, especially, I, again, I've never been to a Warhammer 40k tournament, so I have no idea how uh, turnt those parties get, but I do know that Belagarth gets a little rowdy sometimes, and that there is quite a bit of imbibing, especially by, by certain units and certain cultures within the overall community. Urukai say, what? Yeah, the Urukai are a party camp. <laughs> Part of the reason I don't camp with you guys, I like. I'm I'm the guy who camps in quiet camp and then goes to the parties over in party camp. And then when I want to go to bed, I go back to quiet camp and, <laughs> and yeah, go our, to bed. Our quiet hours isn't until about four in the morning. Yeah, breakfast is the start of quiet hours because everybody's finally going to bed. Um, so this idea of morale comes again. It's it's there's a temptation, and I'm not saying not to party ever, especially if you're of age. If you're underage, I'm not going to condone partying at all because we're a family friendly show here. Um, but if you're of age, uh, partying is absolutely an option to you. And I, I t- I'm 32 at this point, so I'm old by Belagarth standards. Um, not in my early 20s. You start getting hangovers after 25, and that whole particular game changes. But my, my, when I go to an event, especially a week-long event like Chaos Wars or, or a longer event like Battle for the Ring, I'll pick one night as my designated party night. I've told all my unit mates, you're not going to see me at all the next day. <laughs> I'm not going to be on the field. Tomorrow, that day is going to be my recovery day. But I pick one day, that's basically going to be my big party night. And every other day, I try to go to bed in a reasonable time. I try to eat a, a reasonable amount of food. In fact, I have a, a policy when I'm at events, never turn down free food. Unless you think it's been messed with in some way. In that case, turn it down. But if it's coming from a reputable source, never turn down free calories. You're expending a lot of calories being out there, just just walking back and forth to camp, uh, just getting your gear on and everything. It's more than you normally do in your general day, so none of those calories are going to be wasted. Um, it's a good idea to always eat. And then keeping that motivation up. Um, whatever you need to do to do that. Um, uh, one of my tactics that I like to use is music. I think a lot of people uh, resort to this, but but bring in a uh, an iPod or something like that and and plug it in for a few minutes and listen to something that really gets your blood moving. It's not a bad idea. I mean, or, yeah, favorite book, a yeah. little handheld device of any kind, really. A pre-battle ritual of of some sort. I know that's kind of my thing at this point. Is I is I almost go through a pre-battle ritual as I'm getting ready. There's this this. Uh, 
I don't know, this, this energy that's like building up in me because I've done it so many times. Um, it, it, it just is there. And it's just something of doing these motions in this particular way to get myself motivated. I mean, when I'm here at home, before I go to, to Stygia practice, I'll definitely put on a Pandora with some, you know, some Fintroll or some Nile, some K-pop. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> uh, but they're all motivating. That's the, that's the idea. Diversity is the spice <clears throat> of life. It variety is. It's very, very spicy. Um, <laughs> but this, this contributes to morale. So if you're showing up to the field and you are well-read, well, uh, or sorry, well-fed, well-rested, well-motivated, and your opponent is not, this gives you an edge. That, that you wouldn't have on the other hand. And I'm sure this is the same for, for Warhammer 40K. I'm sure, especially with these places that are at hotels, that there are definitely room parties or people who go to the bars or things like that. Um, and I, again, I'm not saying don't have a good time. I'm not saying uh, don't enjoy yourselves. I'm just saying if you want to perform to a decent standard, you got to keep it within reason. you got to take care of yourself. you got to take care of yourself. And regular bathing, all that sort of thing. I bring enough pairs of shoes and... Not shoes, but like socks and underwear. Morale. It's all good. It's all good for the morale. Which which I think ties also directly into the next form of mastery that Sun Tzu talks about, which is that mastery of emotion. And this is exactly what it sounds like. It's remaining calm in face of disharmony and remaining disciplined in the in the face of chaos. Um because the battlefield is chaos. It doesn't matter what kind of plan you bring to it, whether it's uh, whether it's on the board or whether it's on the field. Any wargaming, uh, you're always going to have this element of the unknown, this element of chaos that comes to it. Remaining disciplined, sticking to the things that you know work, and making sure that you don't break down in the face of it. For instance, again, we've talked about this, full frontal charges rarely work. Um... They just get disorganized way too fast. And in knowing that, do not allow yourself, if you're taking, again, if you're just having a goof-off game and you're like, hey, let's do a full frontal charge, it'll be funny, haha. Like, that's cool, you know, whatever. But if, you're, if your team is going for the banner battle and this is, you know, you're really tight with another team and you need the points, the full frontal charge just, it does not work. And so don't be convinced. Don't, don't let your emotions run hot enough that you ever think <laughs> that that's going to be a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, any you know. any kind of charge is done in a formation, and you charge as one if you're going to have an effective charge. Yeah, yeah. But it is not a full frontal charge <clears throat> where everybody's just sprinting at each other. Those just do not happen. No. Uh, no matter what you may have seen in Braveheart, that, that is not an effective way to wage war. Um, so, the again, these ideas, remaining calm, keeping disciplined, this is the mastery of emotion, and this keeps your head in the game where your opponents might not be. Um, and this emotion, this mastery of the emotion, can also lead to the mastery of the upper hand, which is always playing to your advantage, always coming from the uphill, charging from the uphill, never defending on the downhill, uh, making sure that you've got the concave on your side, you're not the one in the middle on that, um, playing to this upper hand is always important and you should always try to find a way to have the upper hand. And I'm not advocating for cheating. I'm not advocating for even cheesing, which is to say, you know, pushing those rules to such a point that you're basically breaking them. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm actually advocating for real sound tactical movement that gives you the upper hand. You see somebody stumble, you see somebody drop their weapon, you take that upper hand. That's right. I, I teach all of my uh, apprentices and students. I'm like, if I, if I drop my sword, don't give it back to me. You just got the upper hand. <laughs> Kill me for that. 
I will kill you. Uh, I, I, I've killed Kaji for it. <laughs> I've killed you for it. And he's it. killed me for it. He learned well. It's good. Um, but yeah, so, so this upper hand, always play into your advantage. This one kind of... Uh, so if you've got a melee-based army, try not to let your opponent engage you too much at range. Close that gap as quickly as you can. If you've got a shooting-based army, don't let that melee-based army get in range. Um, yeah. Yeah, find a way to get your bubbles set down right. And that one, I mean, that one's pretty... Again, all these little things, these are all tiny things. This mastery of the devious, mastery of morale, mastery of emotion, mastery of the upper hand, all together make something palpable. Um... One, just one might not, because your opponent might also be able to remain calm in the case of the emotion. So if you both can remain calm, you're on even terms. But if you both remain calm, but you're moving at them from the up upper angle of a slope, you've just given yourself another advantage, right? So the last one, and this one, it takes real mastery to control, because this is mastery of circumstance. And, and this one, you have to be able to predict almost what's going to happen in order to have mastery of circumstance. And to be able to make those predictions, uh, I get the, all these other things have to have fallen into place. If you don't understand the nobles, which is that you don't understand your enemy, if you're not understanding the terrain, if you don't know what map type you're going to be on, if you don't know what game type it is, these, these are all circumstantial. A, a team that wins really well at Ring the Bell might not win as well at Stand and Deliver. Because the, just the circumstances play to different players' abilities well. So the more knowledge you have, the more complete picture you can paint in your mind, the more that you can master these ideas of circumstance. Because timing, timing is all a matter of circumstance. Again, seeing the opportunity, seizing it, and having that timing, like we talked about last, last episode, um, oh, that's huge. Uh, and then, uh, again, avoiding fighting on their terms. Remember we, we said in this last one that the mastery of the upper hand is always fighting on your terms. Uh, just as important is avoiding fighting on your opponent's terms. I'm going to uh, bring in Turkey Feathers for a second because I, I like to talk about him just as much as I like to talk about you on this show. <laughs> I, Desi, I wish you were closer so I could talk about you more. Move out here. Um, <laughs> bring Zulu back. Bring, yeah, bring yourself. Come on now. Um... But uh, I learned fairly early on that one of Turkey Feather's most, um, like one of the places he plays the best is when he is running backwards. He fights incredibly well when he is on the back foot, which is not something that is typical. But because of his agility, he's able to scoot backwards really quickly and deliver some really devastating blasts along the way. Um... Knowing this, I try not to engage him on those terms. If he starts retreating backwards from my from my combo, I will just plant where I am and look at him like, nope, you come back. <laughs> I'm, I'm not playing that game. I know what happens if I chase you, and it doesn't work well for me. Um, and that's me playing to the circumstance. That's me not being lured into to playing on his terms because he's already a good fighter. I don't need to give him um, the, the circumstance of being in a position where he's playing on his terms as well. You know, because yeah. his mastery of creating the circumstance so that everything else can fall into place for himself is that backstab. And that moment, breath. It's, it's, it's just, yeah. Jerky Feathers. Uh, uh, he's a very good fighter. If you haven't gotten a chance to hang out with him or fight him, do so. Uh, it'll be well worth your time. Um, very so, much so. So this is the mastery that comes in around the idea of maneuver. Again, somebody who understands how to use their forces well. Somebody who understands how their enemy fights 
uh, and, and obviously the, the sheer martial skill. If, you're, if your team is just better, if you just have a better list uh, than your opponent does, or if you're, your team of fighters, or if you as a fighter are just better than your opponent, that makes a huge difference. But these masteries are if you are evenly matched. If, if say, Kaji and I take to the field, and I'm not, I don't think that any victory I have against Kaji is guaranteed, and either of the things we do, either Bellegarth or 40k at this point, um, it, it's fairly evenly matched at this point. And so making sure that I deny him these, these, these masteries, this deviousness, this circumstance, these upper hands, that is more important than if I was just better than him. Right? Yep. I, I mean, because then you can just, I stomped you, move on to the next one. But... Uh, these are things to consider, and you should always assume that your opponent is going to be a as, challenge. Yeah, as good, if not better, than you. Because even noobs have a noob foo, and and even a noob can do something you didn't expect, and you were too cocky to block, <laughs> and then you're dead, and you look like a dummy. Um, One of the things that uh, I was always told when I was learning martial arts is, you you do not train to fight those weaker than you. You train to fight those stronger. Right. Yeah, that's if you're not doing that, you're not getting better. And if you're not getting better, then what's the point? You're not gaining those masteries. That's right. You got to get those masteries. Uh, we don't have any badges for them yet, but we can eventually we'll start getting these little Boy Scout badges. You know, devious mastery. I'm put that on there. Um, get that sash. Get it all decorated. So the the battle for today. Um, I actually had a hard time finding this one because as I was researching the chapter, I realized that the battle we did last week would have gone perfectly with what we were discussing today. Thankfully, there's a lot of examples throughout history of various things going well, so I found another one. Uh, and this is the Battle of Karhai, um, or Kare. I'm not quite sure. Again, I, these are things I've only ever read. And I encourage you to look it up. This one took place in, in uh, 53 BCE, uh, and it was a, a clash between the Parth... Uh, Parthians and the Romans. Um, so a little bit of backstory uh, while I break into this again. I encourage you to read at home. Uh, there's going to be some things I gloss over because uh, I want to make sure that I'm not here talking to you guys <laughs> for the rest of your lives. Um, but the, the basics are, on the Roman side, their main general was a guy named Crassus. Uh, now Crassus had not led an army in about 17 years, um, and, but he was, a, he was a major politician. His family were, were players in Rome. And so the reason he was on this particular campaign was literally just to build political clout. Um, there was no real causus belli, which is to say there was no real reason for going to war other than he needed to uh, get some victories. That was a, that was a, if you were a member of the, of the Roman uh, patrician class... Uh, Rome was still a very martial state at this time, which is to say that if you were a politician who had a lot of military victories, you were going to be looked upon better than somebody who didn't. And so this is probably the reason why Crassus got off the retirement couch after 17 years and came out, is because he wanted to secure his his family's clout in Rome. Um, His son, Publius, um, had actually recently served Caesar while in Gaul. So Publius was no was no stranger to combat either, um, and and this this force had recently conquered Anatolia and Armenia, and as they were moving into like the Syria area, this is when they first encountered the Parthians. Um, now the Parthians were they're probably one of the coolest civilizations that you haven't heard of 
honestly, you should, you should make a study out of the Parthians. They are a really cool civilization. Um, but they were a land-owning aristocracy. Early on, they had supplied um, horses and, and troops to one of the Persian empires, but at this point they had risen to an empire of their own. And they were a land-owning aristocracy that was divided between the nobles who rode were a cataphract unit. Remember when we were talking about the Mongolians, we talked about light and heavy cav. Uh, the cataphract was the heavy cav of this region. Uh, and, the, and the light cav was, the, was what, the, what the retainers were, and they were the horse archers. That was almost exclusively their job. And this was how their society was kind of set up. And they controlled uh, all of Persia and kind of Mesopotamia at this time, and they were divided up into seven great clans. Um, the leader of this force... We don't actually know his name. The Greeks and the Romans didn't record it. Um, the, the clan he came from was Serana, or Serena. Um, so they just called him that. But that was actually the name of his clan. We, we don't know what the, the name of this general was. But he did very well, not to give away too many spoilers. Um, mm-hmm. Before we get started on the battle itself, do you have any questions for me? So this was just a straight political war. There was no real reason, no aggression or anything like that. No, the the, the Parthians were not in a period of expansion at this time. Uh, the the early encounters between the Romans and the Parthians had been fine. Uh, again, they, they had not been uh, hostile in any way. Uh, so yes, this was a purely political maneuver from Crassus um, against people who who weren't necessarily wanting. War, like I said, there was no causes belly. There was no just cause for it. So I know the Romans were were the aggressors here, um, and I, I basically my question here is: so uh, what kind of state were the Par- Parthians? Parthians. Parthians. Uh, the, the the Parthians were actually elsewhere when this campaign first began. Um, uh, the The battle itself takes takes place in 53, but the campaign began in 54, and when Crassus began this invasion, um, the main Parthian army was actually off dealing with internal civil war issues. So um, uh, Crassus had very early victory, because he was just going against the local militias at this point. Um, and so he was having some very good early victories that gave him quite a big head. Uh, especially, this is the guy who was instrumental in crushing the rebellion led by Spartacus. So, I mean, he was he was no small name in uh, in Rome at this time. Um, so he had no reason to think that he was anything other than awesome, because <laughs> by Western standards, he was doing quite well. Um, but yeah, uh, so so they were they were dealing with this other this other issue, um, and. He had left the majority of his force kind of back at a home base. The idea was that they were going to be a relief force and that they were going to come to their aid whenever Crassus was able to join battle and kind of provide not just reserves, but perhaps a a strategic flank or something along those lines. Um, Because they didn't really know what to expect. Much like um, when the Russians were going against the Mongolians at the Battle of the River Kalka, um, they had never really been exposed to this style of war. They were used to massed infantry armies. The idea of an all-cav army was non-existent. They just didn't have the tech for it. These these step ponies that the Mongolians and the Parthians had access to that were bred for carrying large loads, were trained for moving with large loads on them for all this armor and everything, and then were also used to subsiding off of these really short, hard-to-get step grasses. You could take these horses anywhere <laughs> and they would kick ass, because that's what they're biologically designed to do so just in terms of the 
the biological technology available to them. The Parthians had an edge here that Crassus did not know about yet. Because um, again, the main army was off in the east dealing with the civil war issue. Crassus moves in basically um, without defeat. He starts moving back toward his home, his home base, and one of his lieutenants named Gaius Cassius Longinus, one of the uh, namesakes of my cat, um, you might recognize him as, as one of the future assassins of Caesar as well, had recommended that he form up into a long column with his cavalry on the sides to provide support. And at first, Crassus did this, but then he eventually resorted to going into the traditional Roman square. The, it's a very slow-moving but very solid formation that's, ex again, exceptionally effective against enemy infantry, right? So, he realizes the Parthians are in the area. He starts moving towards them. The, the force that comes toward him is this force that's, that's commanded by Serena. Um, the main force of the Parthians moves toward the relief force. So this relief force that Crassus was expecting to come is not coming because they are engaged with a much larger army. This group of Parthians, however, moves to meet them, and at first they are lined up in a very narrow column, which, if you've ever watched Star Wars, hides their numbers. So again, Crassus had these early victories. He's feeling real good about himself. He's got a, a distinguished military career. There should be nothing. And then these this paltry number of horsemen are in front of him, you know. He wasn't worried, but he should have been, because these Parthians suddenly throw off these, uh, these like this canvas that they've been wearing on their armor, and suddenly you see this gleaming bronze across the field, and suddenly the gongs and the drums start up, and you, and then there's a, an actual force on the other side, and so the Romans turtle up as they do in this nice square formation, and the Parthians move to charge them, but instead of hitting them straight on, they go to the sides. They go to the sides, and what you've got here is this uh, these horse archers that I was talking about. And what they do is just start firing into the Romans. And the Romans, they're used to taking a fair amount of support, but much like the Mongolian bow, the, the bows that the Parthians were using were much stronger than anything that the Romans had been experiencing. Uh, Plutarch records that these arrows were cutting through armor, cutting through shields, like they were being fired at such a velocity, with such force, that this formation was doing absolutely nothing to, to stop this, this murder that was right. occurring. The difference between the wood bow to the horn bow. Exactly. Exactly, and again, this this the step technology, this this massed fire that they were doing. They brought along um, camels that were laden with arrows, so that when they ran out, they could just be like, "All right, reloading." And so at this point, crashes to, like realizes that um, this isn't working. They've they've tried to launch a few small counterattacks, but each time the Parthians have just ridden out of range and rained arrows at them. But they're they're stuck. If they stay where they are, they're going to get slain. And so he sends out his son. Uh, Publius is sent out with a detachment um, against the Parthians, who apparently flee. But instead of going back to the main force, Publius gives chase. Oh, that's a bad choice. Yeah. That's always a bad choice. If your enemy just takes turns when they already are overwhelming you, that's a trap. It is, and it Ad was. Admiral Akbar would be disappointed in you. That's a trap. Um, so, a ways away, when they get up onto the, to a, a bluff nearby, the Parthians turn, and, and Publius has been drawn away from the Roman main body at this point, and they wheel and they charge him, but at this point, they, they don't just have the light forces anymore, the cataphracts have joined them. 
So you've got heavy cav bearing down, and Publius is not ready for this. They are cut down by the arrows, they are cut down by the charges, and it comes down to it, and in typical Roman fashion, Publius and some of his generals end their own lives, rather than be captured. That was a, a rather common Roman thing at the time. Um, Crassus tries to rally his troops. He, he tries to, to be like, we need to go, we need to go uh, save Publius, we need to go and... Um, uh, link up with that part of the army, they've gotten too far away, but his troops are too demoralized at this point. They've been getting shot to absolute <laughs> uh, hell by these, by these arrows, and then they've just watched one of, their, one of their finest generals, one of their finest commanders, go off and get destroyed by this technique. They were not in a good headspace to move out. So the Romans actually dug in, uh, waited until night, and then used that to slip away. Um... So this did not end well for Crassus. This did not end well. Definitely didn't end well for Publius. Um, now, eventually, the Roman Empire would move into this area, but it would be a while. It would be a while before they could break the hold that these uh, nomads that they hadn't given any thought to before. Uh, they, it was not something that they considered a threat. Again, just a, a bunch of "quote unquote" barbarians on horses. How dangerous could that be? Uh. <laughs> that never backfired. Hubris. Hubris is never good. So I'm glad we, that, that, that this happened because it was another good example of what we were talking about. Um, and so the, this was the kind of the themes of maneuvering against the enemy. You need to press your advantages. You need to understand risk and reward and the opportunities that come and, and the, the peril that you might be in trying to pursue those said opportunities. And it is important to master the battlefield in a lot of different ways, not just in the way you fight, not in just the way that you practice, but in, the, in all these other ways, this mastery of the devious, mastery of your emotions. These will give you that extra edge in battle that you might not have already had. And then take a lesson from Crassus and Publius, and don't allow yourself to become overextended, and do not fall into the trap of hubris. I think is one of the big lessons of that battle is is just because you've done well doesn't mean you will do well. Yep. Do not overextend. Do not wear out your welcome. Well, Kaji, I've absolutely loved having you on for this episode. Um, yeah. Did you have anything else you want to say before we end for the evening? Nope. Thank you for letting me be here. It was a great time. Absolutely. And and hopefully we'll have Oni next back next time, uh, and we will be talking to you about the nine variables. I know I say this every time, but this is one of my favorite chapters, <laughs> and I cannot wait uh, to go over it. It might end up need to be a two-parter because there is a lot of information in just two pages. Um, so, again, highly recommend you read this one. We'll be going over it next time. Um, you can find us on Facebook if you're looking for a way to connect uh, just the art of war gaming. You see a picture of me and Oni covered in maps there. Uh, we're on Instagram, Art of War Gaming Podcast is our, uh, our handle on there. Um, you can email us if you've got something that you, you want to talk about, a battle that you think we should do, um, uh, or, or even pictures that you'd like to be included on the on the Instagram feed, you can email those to me at the, uh, at art of war gaming podcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah, I think that's it. We good. Awesome. Yeah. Well, this has been Kaji and Malark signing off.